0: So good morning, good afternoon, everyone. This is Jay from Practice and Research Together. I want to thank you all for joining us today for our webinar entitled Challenging Attitudes in the Assessment of Safety for Children Who Live with Violence. So welcome all. Excuse me while I move forward here. Uh, So as usual, those of you who have joined us frequently will know that um, this is something that is important for us to do here at PART. Um, And uh, so I would like to take just a few moments before we begin our webinar to acknowledge the land upon which I was born and raised. Uh, This land is called Thundering Waters. Now we call it Niagara Falls. Um, The territory I live in, is covered by the Upper Canada treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. So the dish in the wampum agreement represents the land that's to be shared peacefully among us, and the spoon represents us, so the individuals living on and using the resources of the land. Uh, this, this particular agreement is one that celebrates that spirit of reciprocity and creates space for uh, awareness of things like environmental sustainability, uh, along with uh, just reminding of us our of our responsibility to ensure that that dish is never emptied as we take care of the land and all of the living beings on it. Uh, so it's, it's important for us to understand the long standing history that's brought us to reside on the lands. Um, and we must seek our own understanding of our own place within this history. So it's in that spirit that I want to share with you where I'm personally situated in the present. Uh, I'm a non-Indigenous person raised in the territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples by my parents whose own parents left their traditional territory to settle on this land, unaware that by doing so, they were complicit in the attempted genocide of Indigenous people by church and state. Um, My family was actually further complicit in this act by unknowingly supporting the forced removal of Indigenous children from their home communities and culture by the adoption of an Indigenous child who was my brother. Um, When my parents inquired about keeping my brother attached to his Cree culture, they were told by the Children's Aid Society not to pursue any connection as it would only confuse the child. So now, fast forward, I am the mother of an Indigenous daughter and grandma and auntie to many other young ones belonging to the Nishka Nation, and it's now through that lens that I witness how intergenerational trauma and residential school uh, has impacted the Indigenous community at large, as well as my own family Um, and how important the reclamation of traditional ways of knowing and being really are either through language or ceremony uh, or food sovereignty or land back. So I personally choose to acknowledge that colonialism is an ongoing affair and that it's important that we build upon our awareness of our present participation within it, as well as actively participating in the decolonization of our mindsets and dismantling the systems within our government and communities, and particularly the profession that we work in um, that can continue to repress Indigenous sovereignty. Uh, Today, I encourage every non-Indigenous person to take some time to reflect on the privileges afforded uh, to them by colonialism, and also consider what action can be taken in your own home, in your workplace, and in the community to support reconciliation going forward. Thank you for hearing me. Um, Moving forward, I just wanna go through a few of our housekeeping rules for our new folks. Um, As usual, the PowerPoint slides for our presentation have been sent out to everyone who registered for the webinar. They're also will be uploaded to our website after the presentation today. Um, Throughout the webinar, please type any questions or comments into the chat box at the bottom of your screen. Um, We will answer any logistical questions you might have as we go throughout. And then we'll also just keep track of the questions you have for our presenter today. Um, And uh, we'll we'll save them till the end of the presentation and then we'll, we'll facilitate a conversation based around your questions with our presenter. Uh, So like all part webinars, the presentation we're doing today is recorded and then will be archived on our website to access the recordings on the website, you just need to visit the archived webinars page under the resources tab and you can find that just along the top of the part web page there that you'll find the recording of the webinar. Uh, an audio only version, and then also the practice points, which are just like a little one page summary that we write about the presentation, uh, as well as any special resources that our presenters might have asked us to share. We always send out a short evaluation survey to all attendees after the webinar, along with the practice points. So please take the time to fill that out. Um, We really appreciate your feedback. It's very important for us to know uh, what we're doing well and what we could be doing better. And lastly, follow us on social media. Uh, We have our resources on um, X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, Instagram and Facebook, and we often post links to relevant community resources. So also feel free to share yours with us. Uh, so also, just before we begin, I want to remind everyone that here at part we view research as part of the process of evidence informed practice and evidence informed practice is defined by key for by four key factors that I've put up on the screen here for you. Uh, those would be case context, the child youth and family preferences worker supervisor and organizational preferences and then lastly the research evidence and this is the part of the equation that we like to focus on here at PARC um, and so that we can help workers better understand what the research is saying about a specific issue and how and if uh, you should use these findings in your decision making. Our webinar presenters are experts in the research pertaining to their field and area of interest, and we can use this research, evidence, and knowledge uh, in conjunction with our years of experience and practical knowledge to better inform our practices and policies. If you'd like to learn more about evidence-informed practice or evidence-informed decision-making, please visit our website. We have lots of great resources for you to access, including the EIP Academy Um, We also have some fantastic guidebooks that we um, love to love to share with all of you. So enough of me, Um, I'm excited and privileged today to be able to introduce to you our presenter, Dr. Kate Alexander. Uh, Dr. Alexander is the senior practitioner at the Office of the Senior Practitioner for the New South Wales Department of Communities and Justice in Australia. Uh, Kate leads the department's work to inspire, influence, and review child protection practice and this includes child death review work, leading evidence-based child protection approaches, and facilitating learning through conferences, publications, and coaching strategies. So um, you can see why we're very excited to have her here today. Uh, Kate has a master's of social work in family therapy and has worked in the field of child protection for more than 25 years in a variety of roles, including therapeutic, casework, and management. Uh, In February of 2024, she concluded her PhD at the University of Melbourne, congratulations, Uh, and focused on honouring resistance, understanding the impact of attitudes and making better decisions about children who experience domestic violence. So uh, Kate joins us today from... Um, the other side of the world so Kate I very much appreciate you joining us at uh, a time that's less convenient for you than it is for us um, we're very excited to have you here and uh, I look forward to hearing from you so I'll, I'll hand things over to you thanks so much
1: well, thank you Jay and welcome everybody and lovely to be with you it's um, yes it's 7 30 in the morning or seven forty-five now in the morning over here in Sydney Um, uh, Yeah, and we've had a few IT issues, so it was a little bit of a stressful start, but very happy to be with you all this morning. Uh, Next. Uh, As is tradition in Australia and very important to us, very similar to what um, I just heard Jay talk about, I acknowledge the Indigenous people of Australia and the First Nations people who may be listening uh, this morning. I'm coming to you from the land of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation in Sydney. Aboriginal people in Australia belong to the oldest continuous civilization in the world, uh, as much as 70,000 years old. I acknowledge that uh, this beautiful land of ours was not settled on peacefully by my white ancestors. It was taken with great force, and Aboriginal people fought for their lands in battles of unwinnable odds and they've fought for their children every day since. I uphold the resistance, resilience and courage of Aboriginal people. And I place on the record my deep gratitude to Aboriginal children, families and practitioners who've taught me so very much about what good child protection practice looks like. Next. So I also wanted to say welcome from Sydney. This is where I live. That uh, scene is about 20 minutes from my front door. Um, I live in the inner city of so the inner west, we call it, of Sydney, um, where I work. I am a social worker to my core, not a researcher. I've been dabbling in research, but I'm very much a a practitioner and a social worker. Um, I'm not technically a doctor yet. I did tell someone that. Um, I'm in the very final stages of completing the literature review for my thesis and um, will be a officially be a doctor at that point. So that's the first time I've ever heard myself referred to as a doctor. Um, Yeah, so anyway, hello and welcome and I'm excited to talk to you about my research next. So just what I'm going to do is tell you why I did this research, um, how I did it and what it found essentially. I will be talking today about the domestic violence against women, uh, usually mothers, by men, usually fathers and stepfathers. I do acknowledge and I have known families where use of violence and um, use of power has been equal amongst uh, couples. I have worked with families where women's violence against men has been difficult for children. And I have worked with families where uh, violence has been used in same-sex relationships. While acknowledging all of that, The rest of this session will be devoted to talking about uh, men's use of violence against children and mothers, with an understanding that use of violence is gendered, and that violence against women needs to be understood as violence against children, and it's the bread and butter presentation of our child protection work. Thank you. Next. Uh, This is a photo of my three children, they're quite a lot bigger now. Um, It's the only photo of my children that is in these slides. Um, And I use it for a reason, uh, really to um, underscore the gravity of my commitment to this work and the decisions we make. When I joined the statutory system 27 years ago, I came from a child sexual assault counselling position where children and families came voluntarily to um, our service. I moved over to the inner city of Sydney at a time where child protection in Australia was removing a lot of children my signatures on some of those papers and I led or carried some of those children away from their families. Decisions that stay with you, quite rightly. The uh, reasons we were bringing children into care back then, um, the risks to those children were undeniably raw and real. But we did not know enough about how to work in context of bleak oppression, how to enact social justice and how to partner with families to motivate parental change and um, partnerships around safety and culture and community for children. Of all the years I've uh, done this work and I've had responsibility for the child death reviews in New South Wales for the last 10 years, a senior practitioner that responsibility sits in my office. Of all the stories I know, including horrific child deaths and injuries, uh, perhaps the children that stay with me the most and the sadness that sticks with me the most is the children who were lonely. And I think back to some of those children that I personally drove away from their parents. Uh, I drove them to foster care, sometimes in the middle of the night, and it's those children that haunt me the most, uh, taking them from one set of worries and loading them up with another. Often um, children too young or too overwhelmed to speak, and we handed them over to foster carers and drove away. Uh, in the last decade in Australia, we've brought down the number of children we've Uh, in that we've brought into care by 44%. And we're very proud of that um, result. We've got a long way to go. And to be clear, there will always be children for whom statutory powers of removals are needed. But it is our job in the statutory system to work to keep that uh, group of children in the minority and to only use statutory powers when we've exhausted every other option uh, with family and community because we've certainly learned that family is nearly always the best place for children. Next, thanks. Um, Just a quick warning that some of the stories I refer to are are sad stories, um, particularly the first one, but most of them, um, I hope you will hear the hope. I have incredible hope for this work. I can't think of any more important work than child protection. Um, Its importance is unparalleled and its hope is endless. Next. So I start with one horrific story to make a point, and the point is about attitudes. In 2018, Jack and Jennifer Edwards, who were 13 and 14 year old uh, siblings, were shot by their and killed by their father. Their mother Olga had separated from him two years earlier. I'm only talking about these children because this information is on the public record. Next. What happened was that the mother had separated from the father and been to family court to fight for the custody of her children. She'd taken out apprehended violence orders and two years after all of this, he stalked the children on their way home from school and he shot them in the afternoon. The mother's statement to the family court two years earlier described her fear that one day she'd come home to find her children dead. She described her fear of uh, her husband's danger and um, his controlling and physically violent behaviours. And six months after after shooting the children, um, John Edwards shot himself. And six months later, Olga took her own life. The way it was portrayed in the media, this was only 2018, one headline in the media said, shocking, the father kills the boy and daughter after being divorced by his wife. You can see where the blame is being laid. Uh, After Olga took her own life, in perhaps the final act of resistance for her, I can imagine life was unbearable, that the Herald reported Sydney mother's death following domestic violence tragedy. This was not a domestic violence tragedy. They'd been separated for two years and it was a cold-blooded murder. In the transcript of the coroner's finding, which is publicly available, there was a huge inquest into this led by our state coroner. And uh, this fellow had several previous relationships with women who tried to take out AVOs. One of them was his adult daughter from a previous relationship and the police at the time said that given her father had only made three separate attempts to contact her an AVO would be sufficient. The prosecutor said to that adult daughter who was clear she did not want to see her father anymore and wanted him charged with stalking her. The prosecutor said to her he is your father can't you just sort this out amongst yourselves. Uh, next please. In court, in the family court, court court-appointed family consultants uh, blamed the children and their mother for not wanting to see their father. Such information may suggest that Jack's views have been influenced by his mother and about the daughter. It said Jenny's complete rejection of relationship with her father seemed somewhat out of proportion to his behaviour. It was a story of not listening to the views and expertise of women and children. Next There's a story also of placing responsibility with the mothers. The independent children's lawyer, ironically, who was there to represent the children's uh, wishes, put a lot of responsibility on the mother. The mother's not thinking about the impact of the children. It's the mother's obligation to encourage and facilitate the time and for the situation to work, the mother has to participate. These children consistently described they did not want to see their father, they were afraid of him, and the mother consistently fought to have them the father charged and separated from his children. Next. So uh, the reason I start with that story is, is not to be dramatic, but to highlight attitudes. And when you look through the coroner's transcript, you can see there's a range of attitudes that were mother blaming that minimise the views of children. And for uh, uh, overrepresented the importance of the father's relationship to the children without placing responsibility on him for his violence. All of that we would call a social response. I'll be talking to you soon about the work of uh, brilliant Canadians. Uh, I'm sure many of you are aware of the work of the Centre for Response Based Practice. And uh, the the way of thinking with response-based practice really emphasises the importance of social responses. And we've done a lot in New South Wales to help our child protection workforce see themselves as a part of a social response and that we really encourage them always to be curious about social responses children and women have received. Next. It's also about upholding the expertise of mothers. Until recently, the way we assess safety in New South Wales was through, we we rely on the structured decision-making tools, the safety assessment approach in New South Wales has a lot of strength for its structure and its attempts to guard against bias if used by a well-trained and professional workforce. But what it doesn't do is formally prompt our workforce to slow down and ask mothers about how they manage, resist, and cope with violence. It doesn't tap into their insights about their their expertise and management. Next. I've known many children over the years who've been brought into care where we describe their mothers as failing to protect them. The language of failing to protect places responsibility for violence on mothers. Uh, we've, we've brought children into care and we've separated them from their mothers. Despite this, I know many stories about women, mothers who've... uh, I I knew one mother who kept a backpack hidden in a tree at the park with clothes for her and her children. It took pack and flee the home with her children. I knew another mother who hid a roll of masking tape in the top drawer in her son's bedroom, and when the violence got too bad, that little boy knew. He knew to take his baby brother into the bedroom and he knew to put his baby brother in the cot and he had a whole routine of standing on a chair and putting masking tape or we, we, big sticky tape, probably in your terms, that he would bite with his teeth to break through the tape and he'd put it around the door to block out the noise. These are women and children who are doing their best to survive violence and asking about their actions upholds their dignity. It also upholds the story of resistance. Next. Next. Um, another part of the response-based practice that we've really pushed in New South Wales is the importance of language. And uh, it's about being, being aware of words that minimise, mutualise, pathologise, sanitise and bureaucratise. Uh, a, a sentence that commonly litters child protection files across Australia as well as police and health department records, is a sentence I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is the child was exposed to incidents of domestic violence between her parents. If a little girl like this one at y- as young as five is so attuned to horrible things in her home that she can read a situation the second her father walks in the door from work that this little girl can be up on her feet, distracting, cajoling, calming. She can climb on her father's lap and use her little hands to pull his face towards her, to divert his energy away from her mother to her. And she can be charming and distracting and masterful. And sometimes her efforts to distract her father work. And sometimes she's successful. And other times she's not able to uh, distract him, and when she knows that's the case, she gets up and she takes her little sister to the bedroom and closes the door and she puts her hands over her little sister's ears and she whispers over and over, mum will be okay, mum will be okay. But that that little girl doesn't know that her mum will be okay. She doesn't know that she'll be able to get up in the morning or take her to school. That little girl is way more than exposed to violence she lives with violence, she's on constant alert and she does her creative best to manage it and she is masterful. An incident is something that has a beginning and an end. This little girl can't remember life without fear and violence and she sure as hell can't see an end in sight. And when we talk about violence between people, it's a mutualizing term. We would never hear on the radio, the police were called to a shoplifting incident between a thief and a shopkeeper. If we know who did what to whom we need to say it. And it is much more accurate to say that this little girl uh, lives in fear because she heard her father beat or shout at her mother. And this little girl does her creative best to manage it. Next. So why did I do this research? Firstly, I was in, interested in the impact of attitudes on decisions. Uh, in that circle there, you can see the New South Wales Practice Framework, and that's uh, we've been working really hard to improve the skills and knowledge of our workforce. We know that skills are everything in working with family, skills and ability and empathy to get families and children to talk. But what about the impact of attitudes? They're harder to teach and they're harder to measure. I was also interested to test a pragmatic and socially just approach to standards child protection safety assessments and that was about integrating a response-based practice model into our practice next Um, and i this a quick diversion to tell you about my experience with response-based practice and why i fell in love with this way of working in 2014 in new south wales we had a major Uh, Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. There were many hearings all over the country. This one was about the Parramatta Girls Home, which was a former jail that was used up and it was only closed in 1970. It was used to house girls and young women. They were charged with moral endangerment and um, some of them were young women with uh, minor, minor offences and other were young women who were um, unsafe in their families. And they were put in Parramatta Girls Home, which was a former jail, as I mentioned. My job at the Royal uh, Commission was to give evidence on behalf of the department. It was called a bearing witness hearing, which means it was the job of the state to turn up and to tune in. I was uh, my brief was to give hope and to describe how the system has changed and a brief I accepted willingly if not naively. Uh, 17 women were to give evidence at the Royal Commission and they were to read from pre-prepared statements and two days were set down. What became immediately obvious is these women did not want to stick to their pre-prepared statement when they took the witness box and many of them were in their 70s and 80s. As the trial went into its second week I started to be concerned about how I would do justice to those women and their suffering by giving evidence after them. To be clear, it was not about me, it was never my stage, it was never my story, but I did also know that I represented amazing uh, and outstanding women and men all across New South Wales who were as horrified as I was by the work, uh, previous work violence and cruelty of our former agency and predecessor agencies. Uh, what I did during that time was turn to the writings about bearing witness of Canadians, particularly Alan Wade, Vicky Reynolds. And I was moved uh, by what they described about where there is oppression, there will be resistance. It literally changed my listening and it changed my hearing to a different frequency. I went back into that courtroom on the Monday and I listened for acts of resistance, not just oppression. Those women wanted us to know they'd been hurt and they'd suffered, but they also wanted us to hear what they'd done to manage it. Why did one woman choose to tell the Royal Commission that as a little girl in foster care, seven years old, she went to bed wearing three layers of underpants and pyjamas? Well, I'm not sure, but I suspect she wanted us to know not just that she'd been sexually abused, but that she'd done her best to stop it happening. These uh, photos here... Uh, the engraving on the wall, one woman in evidence, 80 years old, showed a photo that was taken in the sandstone cells. They were locked in cells at night and they were often raped there. And these girls would sit up and use bobby pins from their hairs to to scrape into the wall. And one wrote, I love my mother. Another one wrote, I hate this place. And they left their resistance in indelible forms in in those walls. Thank you. Next uh, it, it became a very important way for me to work, and it, it is really the importance, and it and it goes right through to our work with children. Asking children how they felt when their father hit their mother, asking children what it was like for them when the ambulance took their mother away, is often uh, questions that don't get many answers. I've often seen, and I wish I hadn't asked children those questions when I was a new social worker. I I wish I knew then what I know now. A much better question is, what did you do? When you heard your dad uh, shouting at your mum, what did you do? A different story emerges. Well, I took my little brother to my bedroom, right? turned the TV up loud. Children are often more animated in response to those questions. Dignity is the state or quality of being worthy of respect. Dignity by hearing a story that's so applicable to child protection work and were uh, very fearful of the system or ashamed when we knock on their door. It helped us to understand family behaviour differently. Next. In falling in love with this way of work, I got very interested in how to incorporate it into our decision-making. What do we know about child protection decision-making? It's fallible and inconsistent. It's subjective. Decisions are often made in stressful situations. Children's perspectives frequently do not influence outcomes, yet worker bias does. Next. So when you know all of that about decision-making, this is a really good way to think about decision making, the ecology, and the factors that impact decisions that are made. Basically, what we know is that two workers using the same uh, decision making tools and framework, if they could work with the same family, could arrive at completely different conclusions. These sort of factors are the reason why. Next. Uh, Eileen Munro. Uh, Seminar work, uh, Predictable Errors in Reasoning, uh, is really useful to look at. And she talks about how resistant people are to altering their beliefs. And once we're set on a course, we, what we do is we collect evidence that supports that belief, and we reject evidence that doesn't. We often hang on to evidence that is the most recent or the most, most emotionally impactful. Children deserve better. Next Uh, What do we know about caseworkers? And this is a little bit what I was talking about before, is more experienced, more skilled, more empathic caseworkers are often met with less resistance. Younger workers have been more likely to remove children from domestic violence and women in the workforce less likely to insist that women leave violent relationships. Next. What we know about domestic violence in Australia is one woman is killed every nine days. That it takes on average six to seven times for women to leave safely, the risk of fatality for women increases upon leaving, Aboriginal women are 32 times more likely to be hospitalised, and safety assessments focusing only on mothers' ability to protect obscure perpetrators' use of violence. Next. We know the impact on children is every bit as harmful as other forms of direct abuse that are frequently children at risk of removal if their mothers do not follow practitioner-defined solutions which do not build on strengths or insights of mothers. I knew of a mother who was met with a very strong social response when she was hospitalised after her husband beat her. The police believed her. The child protection system believed her. The children were put with her family till she could leave hospital and an apprehended violence order was put in place. The system response was strong. Upon leaving hospital, the first thing she did was rung her partner, allowed him back in the home. The system, the child protection workforce was frustrated by her efforts to do this. And she told me later that she hated her husband. The only reason that she did that is she knew she was safer with him in the home outside of it. Uh, He constantly threatened that if she left her, she would kill the children. If she left him, she would kill the children. Asking questions about choices of women is incredibly important, even when the system response is believing of them. Next. Uh, When we look at attitudes, this is just an example of what we know about the attitudes of the Australian public. 91% of people believe violence against women is a problem. Only 47% think it could happen in their own town. Next. So I had three research questions, and this is uh, hard to describe in, in a short space of time. But I was interested whether integrating response based practice with SDM would shift caseworker assessments of children. I was interested in the attitudes of the child protection workforce in Australia, and whether they di- in New South Wales, sorry, and whether they differ from the Australian public. And I was interested in whether casework attitudes and beliefs impact on their decisions. Next. So what I did is I designed a story that was actually based on a true story about these children, Jed and Lily, who were reported because of their father's use of violence against their mother. I wrote a hypothetical script, and I wrote uh, and I wrote two scripts. And uh, video A was a script about a child protection assessment interview on a Monday after these uh, children had been reported on the weekend. They'd been reported by a neighbour who'd seen the children in the backyard on a Saturday afternoon and heard the mother screaming. She called the police. When the police arrived, the mother was injured, um, pregnant, and um, the children was observed by police and ambulance to be okay, but mother was very reluctant to talk. When the child protection worker went out on the Monday, the mother had a uh, visible black eye, and uh, the scripts depict the interview with the mother. There had been a history of violence, and there were concerns about the children. It, video A, dis, interview A, describes a quality. It needed to be a quality interview with the child protection worker using the standard structured uh, decision-making approach of a safety assessment. It's an 18-minute interview where the caseworker talks to the mother. And video B uses those same 18 minutes with an additional eight minutes that were about the uh, that typified response-based practice questions. So I wrote two scripts. And uh, the scripts needed to be validated by experts in response-based practice in Canada, experts in structured decision-making in New South Wales, and uh, they they need to have a lot of integrity to the scripts. I then uh, briefed two actors, Uh, next please, and we made two videos. And these videos were used in training in New South Wales. Video A, as I mentioned, was a quality safety assessment that needed to tick the boxes on all of those domains. I was going to be showing this to our workforce, so it needed to be quality. Video B, next please, uh, incorporated all of video A, but it attended to response-based practice, knowing that language is central, there's power in each moment, so it broke down the violence in more detail. It asked the mother more questions about why she did certain things. The mother described... Uh, being choked by her partner and the question was, what was going through your mind? The mother described her worries about her children and where they were and whether they could hear it. it um, and it covered social responses, her efforts to call the police in the past or what she may or may not have done uh, next. Next. So then, what I did is this: here's the filming. Um, young woman up the top played the mother. The older woman at the bottom played the uh, social worker, the child protection worker. And we filmed it in a lounge room. It was pretty low key, low budget. Um, but we, as we said, we filmed two videos uh, next. So, um, and what I did was build a big survey, rather too big. Um, and uh, the, what the survey did was it, I. I had an opportunity to travel the state. We were doing one day practice conferences all over New South Wales. So I ran the con- the, the research at the beginning of every conference. A, um, the first thing that we did was we got the caseworkers to fill in a survey. And that survey asked about their characteristics and their attitudes to gender and violence. We then played them the the video, either video A or video B, and the videos were randomly assigned um, to different groups. Everyone in one venue watched video A or B. And then they've completed the rest of the survey, um, which had questions that covered the standard domains of a safety assessment, asked to assess whether they thought the children were safe, uh, the mother's level of cooperation, etc. Next. This is what the survey looked like. Just showing you that quickly. Next, please. And this is where I went. These are places all over New South Wales. Next. And that's um, that's me on the road um, in different parts of New South Wales to very tiny country towns to very large city centres. Next. Uh, this is Ningan, which is a very remote, remote, mainly Aboriginal community in New South Wales, Uh, Wonderful to get there. Some of the limitations of the research is that I was asking caseworkers to record their assessment in uh, a very short space of time. They watched an interview, they read a hypothetical report and they indicated how safe they thought the children were, whereas in real life they'd have more time to process uh, that thinking. Not all participant characteristics were captured I didn't ask about people's personal experience of violence, even though we know that can impact decision making and attitudes, comments, Um, conferences, yes. And when I went out to visit, I didn't want people to be having um, to answer questions about their own history of violence. Uh, I had to do a lot of work to attend to the influence of insider status as a researcher, as having a senior practice role within the system, there could be an opportunity for staff to feel pressure to uh, participate or to answer questions in a way that they thought would please me. And we did a lot in the research design to give people to opt out without me knowing about it, to keep it anonymous, to keep it voluntary. Uh, I don't think the intersider status influenced because some people had attitudes that didn't please me one bit. So I don't think the social desirability factor um, was a risk to the research next. Uh, This is me driving all over New South Wales. One of the really reassuring moments was the participation of our workforce. My professors at university were often amazed at some venues I'd get 100% participation rate. But it was about the New South Wales workforce wanting to... um, wanting to put their views and experiences on the map and they often wrote very reassuring and supportive comments on the bottom of the research. The other reassuring experience for me was the, the young actor, the woman who played the young mother. She described to me that after being filmed in video A, She felt very flat and sad, and after being filmed in Video B where she got to describe her acts of resistance and her management of the violence, she said she felt empowered. And uh, she didn't understand anything about the research design, but that was just a reassuring comment. Next. Uh, Here's the surveys. Um, I was thrilled to get 1,041 participants, and I managed to write that number myself. Thank you. Uh, This is what the two groups look like and this is the diversity of our workforce. Um, You can can see the range of qualifications there. Next. So what did we find? Here's a quick few things and these ones are not published. On the bread and butter of child protection, how our staff rated the protectiveness of the mother, 55% of staff agreed. The remaining 45% of staff were polar opposite. This was bread and butter child protection work. It shows you Uh, how inconsistent our thinking of a child protection workforce will be. Next. These next couple just show you um, some sense about the workforce's competence and confidence in working with violence. When working with mothers, I'm unsure how to take assessment to increase safety for her children. 35% of our staff agreed with that one. Next. When working with fathers, if I'm unable to locate him or he does not turn up for a meeting, I'm relieved. 77% of staff agreed to some extent with this comment. I remember feeling like that when I was a 24 and pretty shy, a social worker knocking on the door of a man who'd used violence and being relieved when he wasn't home. It's an honest answer, but it's an answer that we need to attend to. Next And when working with fathers, I'm fearful for my own safety, more than half of our workforce. How skilled, how confident, how strong will your practice be if you're fearful? Next. So the difference of eight minutes, remembering that in these eight minutes, uh, questions were not asked about how the mother protected her children, but they were asked about her insights about the violence and how she managed it. Next. Next. So what you can see is we got hugely different difference of statistical significances on the safety of the children, the cooperation of the mother, the protectiveness of the mother. In video B, 85% of our staff believe she was highly protective and the likelihood of the children entering care. The cooperation of the mother is is an interesting finding. We know in New South Wales research and in other research worldwide that the perceived cooperation, willingness and compliance of parents is often a really strong factor in child protection workforces decision making. And this worries me because... Our perception of how cooperative or willing people are to work with us is a very subjective one. People who are afraid of the department, who are ashamed of us knocking on their door, may respond and cope in ways that we will perceive as not cooperative. And if we see people as not cooperative, we often don't like them or we often have punitive responses rather than being curious about what is behind that behaviour. For women who live with violence, they're often in a very difficult situation. If they tell us the truth about the violence, they're scared we'll take their children from us. But if they don't tell us the truth about their violence, they're scared we'll take their children from them because we will perceive them as not willing, not compliant, and not cooperative. This mother was warm, was open in both videos. She wasn't actually very different in either video. It's just the questions were different and the uh, worker was different. To me, this is a result of empathy. I couldn't work out a way to measure empathy, but it is a result of empathy that by hearing about the mother's acts of resistance and how she managed the violence, the workforce was more um, empathic towards her and then things differently. The interestingly the children were not safe in either video. The huge difference in the safety in video B means was acts of resistance and management. The children were not safe next. Um, so the bottom line here is people who watched video B were four times more likely to assess the children as safe and 2.6 times more light, less likely to assess that the children would enter care. Next all of this is written up in this article, Bring Dignity the Assessment of Safety for Children Who Live with Violence. You can find it in the British Journal of Social Work. And they're my uh, two university supervisors and a statistician who were enormous help to me. Next. The second uh, chunk was about attitudes. And um, next, whether our attitudes differed to the Australian public. There's some standout attitudes of the New South Wales workforce. 21% of our staff believe if she really wanted to leave him, she could. 63% are frustrated when mothers do not stick to the conditions of AVOs. 53% believe the best way for her to keep her children safe is to leave the relationship, which is troubling, doesn't reflect contemporary evidence. 14% 14% agree that it's my job to understand children's experience. If I focus on her experience, it will, object my, it will impact my objectivity for the children. Problematic. Next. How do our um, attitudes compare with the Australian public? So you can see that our attitudes of our workforce were much more likely to reflect contemporary evidence than the Australian public. However, There's a few worries there. The third question, it is hard to understand why women stay in violent relationships. While 78% of the Australian public say that, so too do 27% of ours. It means that more than one in four children will have their door knocked on by a worker who doesn't understand the reasons why their mother may stay in that relationship. Next Those with attitudes most likely to reflect contemporary evidence were in our workforce were women, were senior and specialist staffed, were people with social work degrees and people who've been in the workplace longer. Uh, There's a photo of my dear friend who's a poster girl for all of those categories. Um, She's also a champion cheesemaker, so there she is with her trophies. Uh, Next, please. All of that about attitudes and belief you will find written up in this article there, The Attitudes and Belief of the Child Protection Workforce and Why They Matter to Children, and I've sent you all of those links. Next. The last stage is the hardest one to explain. Um, And I'll do it quickly because I know we're running out of time. But it is the impact of worker attitudes on their assessment decisions. So in order to do that, we needed to build composite scoring models. And we used those three questions, how people answered those three questions, um, and then found that group of people with problematic attitudes and looked at how they assess safety of the children. Next, and the question was: How does informed versus misinformed attitudes affect in likelihood? My hope was that. The people with problematic attitudes, when they watch video B, video B would shift their attitudes. And as a true researcher, you're not meant to have hopes. Um, but but that was my hope because I believe the model could be useful. We found two significant findings that are the attitudes of the workforce and the way they assess children's safety. Problematic attitudes, their attitudes did not impact on the way they assess safety any more than people with uh, good attitudes or attitudes that reflect evidence. However, there was a significant association between people's attitudes and their likelihood of the children entering care. And this is a problem. If you assess children as safe in New South Wales, if your safety assessment finds children as safe, you should not be leading to removal decisions. I think it reflects something uh, maybe punishing, maybe punitive, maybe frustrated in our workforce of the people with poor attitudes, particularly the people who do not believe... um, the reasons why women stay or can't understand that it, that they actually do think these children will end up coming into care, next. Did the response-based practice uh, uh, moderate the impact of people with problematic attitudes? Now the answer is to a certain extent, it amplified the impact on those with good attitudes. So my friend earlier, the champion cheesemaker, attitudes that are believing of mothers, those people with like her. When they watched the combined approach, the B, it amplified the impact. Um, the people with the most problematic attitudes, though, it didn't change their thinking. Whatever at whatever uh, video they watched, the, and the moderation effect diminishes as the propensity for misinformed attitudes increases. Next. So those who agree that it is hard to understand why women stay in violent relationships were significantly more likely to indicate the children would end up in care, regardless of which video they watched. Next. So all of this is written up in the International Journal of Child Abuse and Neglect. Very recently, it was only published right at the end of last year in an article called Why Do Mothers Stay? Challenging Attitudes and Decision-Making About Children at Risk Because of Domestic Violence. Next that's the journal. Um, that's a moment of self-indulgence for me. I've been reading that international journal since I was a baby social worker. And it was always my hope that um, to get published in that journal. So it, it uh, and it got through without any um, recommended editing. So that was we we're a bit chuffed about that. Uh, next. So what have we done about all of this in New South Wales? We have brought in compulsory attitudinal testing at the point of recruitment of our workforce. What that research shows you that there are some people in the workforce with strong attitudes, strong attitudes that are disbelieving and that those attitudes did impact their decisions about children. We've made changes to our safety assessment approach. This is the most important thing. There is no formal safety assessment tool in contemporary child protection systems that formally guide and prompt the child protection workforce to slow down and focus on women's acts of resistance and all they are doing to manage and resist violence. And we now have formal prompts. Intuitive and skilled workers do this naturally, but it is now something staff have to formally score and slow down and do. It's also given us confidence in our framework. Uh, Next I finish with my favourite quote from uh, Canadian uh, brilliant Alan Wade. When we look at how women and children respond to and resist violence, we immediately see their existing capacities, their knowledge, skills and their strength of spirit. We are drawn to the ways they assert their independence and resist violence. It helps us and others to see women and children as active and responding agents rather than being passive victims of abuse. So, I'm sorry I've gone over a little bit. It's a big story to tell, and I've rushed bits of it, but you're welcome to follow up with the articles.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kate. That was, uh, I'm so glad that we have. The slides as well to refer back to because the amount of information you managed to pack in there, uh, I understand why you couldn't leave anything out because it's all so valuable um, and all part of the larger story. So I very much appreciate that. Uh, I also want to let folks know that the articles that um, Kate authored and mentioned within her. PowerPoint will make available to you as well so that everyone has the opportunity to read that whether you're able to access that journal on your own or not. Um, so we'll make sure that that gets out there. So, Kate, okay, yes, we, we are running out of time, but I do have a few um, questions and comments, if you don't mind. Uh, The first one was uh, just amazing how amazing it it was to get uh, 1041 participants in a study. Um, Because that's something that you don't you don't see often, especially one um, that's so involved as yours. So kudos to you for that. Um, One of the questions we have is what may influence the views of those with the strong attitudes when they enter the force?
1: Excellent question. And um, the, the, the evidence about attitudes and behaviors is contested. There's mixed evidence about that. There is evidence that you can shift people's attitudes with good training programs. Um, not a lot in specifically in child protection evidence, but there is evidence in other fields police officers, et cetera, that exposing people to really good training programs that tap into their empathy um, can, can change attitudes. Um, but I would also say that attitudinal testing is important because some of those people in our workforce have been exposed to good quality training. They have been exposed to the stories like that all the time and their attitudes actually didn't shift um, the, the other thing, obviously, is good quality supervision. Um, we've brought in group supervision in New South Wales so that people are not making decisions on their own or, or other people are testing them and questioning them and getting them to reflect on why they have certain views. It could be an unconscious bias they're not even aware of. So any opportunity to talk through, be challenged about decision-making is important.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, and I'm noticing a theme in the questions. Um, someone uh, just questioned in our Q and A: um, Are the videos available for viewing? I knew someone was going to ask about that. Um,
1: <laughs> the videos, it's it's they're not. Well, I have to check that with the woman who runs our learning branch. So we use them with new caseworkers, um, and I'll, I'll check with her about. We we get a lot of questions, and sometimes we can send them out. But let me check that with her, and I can get back to you on that one. Okay,
0: uh, and and to follow up on on that question, um, we had another one around. Has the has the research, including the videos, been translated into training tools that might be available to us?
1: Not yet. Not yet. It has been in our own. We do a seventeen-week uh, course for our brand new caseworkers when they join the department, and it's certainly part of that training. But at the moment, that's only an internal training. It's not. It's not external. We would love. We would love to develop an external
0: package. We just haven't had the time. Okay. Well, I think this is your first indicator of interest. Um, so we would definitely <laughs> definitely support you on that journey. Um, and we would love to, Kate, have you back again in the future as well, just to hear more about um, the work that, that you're continuing to do and how it unfolds uh, as you move forward as well. So I wanna thank you so much for being here with us today on this very early morning for you um, with technology that is not always the friendliest um, I very, very much appreciate that uh, you've been able to and willing to share your knowledge with us today.
1: Thank you so much. I'd love to come to Canada in person one day,
0: so you never know. Doors open, yes, yes. We'll we'll, we'll work on that too. Maybe there's some collaborative things we can be talking about. All right, well, thank you so much to... to everyone, to Kate and to all of our participants. Um, We very much value the time that you give us to um, join us to learn these um, incredible um, things that we're able to do via webinar, reaching these incredible researchers all over the world. And I just want to remind everyone that our next webinar is March 12th, and it is titled Domestic Sex Trafficking of Minors in Canada, Risks and Pathways into Entrapment. Uh, And we actually, we're also releasing a new particle tomorrow, which is entitled The Intersection of Child Welfare and Sexual Exploitation of Male Minors. So keep an eye on your email inbox for that resource coming your way. And with that, I'll bid you all a good day. And uh, until next time. Thanks so much, folks.